Play ball. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. Our company develops analytics and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around baseball about analytics storylines, and try to make the numbers fun and interesting. On today's show, we'll be joined by Arizona Diamondbacks Gold Glove winning shortstop Nick Ahmed. We talked about diving, playing behind certain types of pitchers, and much more. But first, let's start the show with a segment we like to call Batter Up! One of the reasons the St. Louis Cardinals soared to such a successful August was the performance of their infield defense. The Cardinals have the top infield defense in the majors. It has saved 67 runs. First baseman Paul Goldschmidt has been as good as advertised. He covers ground well to both sides, turns the 3-6-3 well, and limits mistakes. Second baseman Colton Wong won a Fielding Bible Award last year and may do so again this season. He leads all second basemen with 13 runs saved. At shortstop, Paul DeYoung is better than you might think. He makes all the routine plays and has gotten significantly better at turning the double play. He's also in the top tier in defensive runs saved at his position. Matt Carpenter and Tommy Edmond have manned third base capably, though without flash. The Cardinals have the highest success rate of turning ground balls and bunts into outs this season. Their pitchers can feel secure when a ground ball is hit that their defense will come up with it. And we haven't even mentioned the improvement of their pitchers, who went from negative four last season to 16 runs saved this season. Good defense has proven to be contagious. Nick Ahmed was the NL's Gold Glove winner at shortstop last season and is headed on a similar path in 2019. He's the position's leader in defensive runs saved the last two seasons. He's done it by making some incredible plays and with a great arm. We talked outfield defense with Kevin Pillar a few weeks ago. Now we talk infield D with Nick. And Nick, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, something that you brought up last year, a quote that I found from when you won the Gold Glove. I've had to do a lot of things to maximize my ability to make certain plays that don't come as naturally to me. What kind of things did you have to do? You know, it's just specific work. Um, I've had, you know, certain things that I've excelled at um, for the most part of my baseball career, uh, at least on the defensive side. But then there's other things that I haven't excelled at, Um, you know, and just trying to look at those weaknesses and trying to attack them and make those strengths, Um, you know, just targeted intentional practice and not just going out and, taking routine fungos and hitting balls right at me, but actually practicing the plays that are going to show up in the game and um, show up in, in, a, in a weird way, you know, plays that are unconventional to a certain degree, um, plays on the run, just learning how to throw more accurately on the run and uh, just things like that. Because of the Diamondbacks' success in, in shifts and the way that, that you guys shift, does that lend itself to having to make more of those sorts of plays? For sure. Um, There's been plays that have come up this year, uh, even the more we've shifted, um, where I've been in an awkward or difficult situation or especially a spot where we're trying to turn a double play in a shift where, um, you know, it may come up as something I've never done before. Um, And it may, we may make the play and just kind of barely squeak through or I may not make the play and, um, you know, lead to a guy getting on base or or not turning a double play. Um, So the things, you know, that may come up I'd never thought of where I, uh, we'll see it in the game and have to make that play and try to do it. And um, I'll, I'll go to work on it the, the following week or the following days uh, afterwards and just try to just be aware of that situation, be aware of the positioning that I'm going to be in and where the rest of my teammates are going to be and, and how we're going to make those plays in the future. So how do, you, how do you practice that? Do you just go out into the field and just do it basically? 
Yeah, I mean, so I'll be in a you know different lineup, or you know, I'll know before a series where we're going to play certain guys and how we're going to be lined up, and uh, I'll go out with our infield coach Tony Perez Chica, and I'll have him hit me balls in a certain spot, and um, you know, work on a certain play, and then we'll just talk through different things. We struggled early in the year, you know, left-handed hitter with a big big shift on and trying to turn a double play on a ball hit to the first baseman with me having to come all the way around the bag from where I was positioned and just being blocked from the runner on the throw. So we've adjusted our our positioning in certain spots just to make those plays a little bit uh, easier just on a vision standpoint and, and being able to execute those plays. So um, knowing that certain spots we're going to have to give up maybe, you know, a couple steps of range or a couple steps to be in the optimal spot to be able to make uh, more plays and, and turn more balls into outs and, and be able to get more double plays. I'm thinking back to a play that you made, and I think it was the first series of the season against Jock Peterson uh, of the Dodgers, uh, a diving stop that you made. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about with the, the kind of play that you have to uh, practice, learn how to make, so to speak? Yeah, uh, you know, so the diving plays aren't aren't something I practice all too <laughs> often uh, during the season now, just for, you know, taking care of my body and risk of injury and that kind of stuff. But um, growing up, you know, I always loved practicing diving for balls. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that when I dive for a ball, um, you know, I, I happen to make a lot of the plays. So I worked on it when I was a little kid, I'd have my dad, uh, take me out in the yard and I'd ask him to hit me what I call divers. So he hit, you know, the ball, not right to me, but he hit it to the left or right. And I'd have to, you know, run full speed and then lay out and try to make the play in a dive. And I actually did the same thing when I got to college or got to high school. I had my high school coach hit me balls after practice and, you know, I'd say, hey, don't hit him right at me. Hit him to my left, hit him, hit him to my right, hit him over my head, and I'd have to go after him and try to make those type of plays. So those are things I've worked on my whole life. Um, but now, especially in September of, of a long season, I, I definitely don't <laughs> go out there on a daily basis and, and die for balls at, at 3 o'clock before a game. But um, I definitely have in the past, and I still work on it to a degree in the off season as well. What makes for a great dive? Like what, what, what goes into it in terms of how you would explain it to someone? I think it's um, – a lot about anticipation. Um, you know, when you're going to dive for a ball, it's going to be uh, a bang-bang type play. So you're going to have to read, um, basically knowing what pitch is coming, knowing what pitcher's on the mound, um, knowing their ability to kind of hit the spot that they're intending to hit, uh, knowing the hitter and what their tendencies are, if they're likely to, you know, pull the ball more, stay more up the middle, just trying to be able to get that extra step or extra, you know, split second of a jump on a ball. And then, um, you know, just going after the ball as, as best you can. There's a lot of times I'll dive for a ball and I feel like I'm not going to get there. So uh, I've learned to kind of dive for balls um, that feel out of reach because um, at times I, I will get there uh, and be able to make a play. So uh, just going all out and knowing um, the speed of the runner as well, how quickly I have to get to my feet uh, and get up to make the throw. So um, it's it's very reactive and, and fast-paced when it's happening, but just trying to put myself – initially in a good position to make the play and get a good jump on the ball. Dude, I don't know if you would know this off the top of your head, but it just got me to thinking about when Zach was there uh, and he fields his position so well and he handles just about anything that's hit up the middle. Did, did that make uh, make it easier on your body? Uh, for sure. I don't know about on my body. Uh, uh, there's still times I'd have to dive, you know, through his changeup and all that. But um, I definitely would position myself differently. Uh, if our alignment said, you know, hey, be right up the middle on this guy, I definitely would adjust my positioning there's no point to stand right behind him he's going to make you know the vast majority of the balls that are hit back to him he's going to make the play so uh, I'd adjust um, we have a guy Mike Leak now who's who's I don't know if he's in that same caliber defensively as Zach but he's pretty close um, in his ability to make plays so I do the same thing with him and and just adjust my alignment based on um, 
you know, what, what our alignment says on our card that we get. And then, um, knowing who's on the mound and their ability to make plays and how they, how they fall off the mound after their pitch. Fall off the mound. That's an interesting one. I don't think most people would, would necessarily think about that. How have you used data to improve your defensive game? I think you've kind of answered that, but I wanted to see if there was a fuller, uh, description. Yeah. So on the, on the offensive side, I definitely use it a lot more. Um, but on the defensive side, it's more about positioning, uh, where I'm putting myself. Uh, I've used video quite a bit in the past to try to get better jumps, uh, going back to the minor leagues and, and, and learning how to get the best jump on balls based on timing of, of when I'm getting back to the ground, um, based on when the pitch is crossing the plate, but, um, not a lot right now. I trust our coaches in front office to, to read the, uh, read the data and place me in the right position. And, um, you know, it's not hard. It's not concrete, black and white. Uh, there's still ability to adjust based on how the guy's swinging the bat that day or how the pitcher on the mound is throwing. But uh, I trust for the most part the, the alignment that our coaches put together and, and allowed me to be in the right place. So from a data perspective, that's about all I use from the defensive side. Why are the Diamondback shifts so effective? Uh, I think we got good good players first and foremost. Um, we got good athletes at all positions. We got guys who are comfortable moving around. We got guys who can play multiple positions. You know, Cattell Marte can play all over the infield and outfield. We have Eduardo Escobar who bounces all over. We got Christian Walker who's uh, incredibly improved and underrated defensively, and Jake Lamb who can go back and forth between third and first. So we have guys who can do multiple things and and really good athletes in different spots and. Uh, our coaches do a really good job. Uh, they take a lot of time and put a lot of effort into making sure we're positioned accordingly in the right spot and uh, taking the feedback from certain pitchers who, um, you know, maybe don't fit into that mold of, of where the ball is going to be hit just based on the numbers and, and adjusting to that. So uh, they do a great job preparing us, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's not a black and white robotic thing. We're still watching and playing and understanding the game and how it's unfolding. The other day, uh, Alex Bregman was lobbying for uh, Yuli Gurriel on MLB Network as a, as a gold glove contender. Uh, w- would you care to lobby? Uh, you were just talking about how Christian Walker is underrated. Would you care to lobby for us to be more appreciative of his defensive work? For sure. The guy is incredible over there at first. Um, you know, I got spoiled playing with Paul Goldschmidt for a lot of years here, but, um, you know, Christian has uh come i think with the reputation in years past of being a, an offensive first uh type player who his defense is it was was lacking far behind that but to his credit he's put in the work uh i don't know if anybody's worked harder than him uh this year defensively man he's just putting the work in day in and day out and uh going back to spring training in the off season he's always picking my brain about ways to get better and different things he can do with his footwork and his hands and all that so he's put in the work and and he's made you know, every routine play, it seems like all season long, he's picked balls out of the dirt for all of us infielders all year. Uh, and he's made phenomenal plays. I don't know if you guys saw the double play the other night in the ninth inning against the Dodgers. The tying run on second, he lays out, makes a great play, throws me a perfect ball over the bag, and we turn two to save the game. So uh, he's done He's done everything over there for us, and he's swung a great bat too. So he's He's definitely, in my eyes, a gold glover over there at first. When you look at uh, defensive uh, evaluation and how uh, fans and how uh, people people in our line of work uh, analyze defense, what would you like them to know that maybe they don't know? I don't know. I mean, I think there's, um, in the last several years, a good understanding of, of the value that a defender can bring to a game. Um, you know, for a lot of years, our game was based solely on offensive numbers. Uh, and the defense was only on an eye test. Um, you know, so fans who didn't see a player play, whether he was in a small market, like kind of, you know, similar to how we are in Arizona or playing on the West Coast where games aren't 
um, televised at a time where people watch, say, on the East Coast or Midwest. Uh, people weren't getting the recognition and people weren't getting, um, you know, notice for what they were doing defensively. But I think now numbers are starting to be able to quantify a lot of that. Um, you know, there's countless amounts of defensive stats now, I think. Um, you know, I don't know if there's one specific one that kind of enca- encapsulates all of that, maybe defensive run saved or, or one of the ones like that. But uh, just getting to understand that there's so much that goes into it. There's so many different ways to affect the game, um, you know, not just an offensive side hitting a home run or driving in a run, but uh, how valuable uh, a good defender can be to a ball club. So um, I think you guys are doing a good job now. Um, you know, I think this, the smaller market teams still get uh, less love uh, from the media nationally and, you know, how they're publicized and how they're talked about. But um, I think the numbers are, are facts, they're concrete and they're hard. And, um, you know, they, they show how valuable players are to their teams. And last question, um, what advice would you give to a kid who says, I want to play defense like Nick Ahmed does? Uh, you got to love it, first and foremost. Um, you know, there's a lot of baseball players who only want to work on their hitting. Uh, they want to go to the cage. They want to practice hitting and hitting home runs. Um, but you got to work at it. Um, I've always loved playing defense, even since I was a little kid. I can always remember, you know, loving uh, going out and taking ground balls and playing catch and working on those you know, quote unquote divers, um, for my whole life. And I always remember doing that and loving it and enjoying it. Um, and just putting in the work, putting in the time, staying after practice, getting there early, uh, finding somebody who's better than you or more knowledgeable than you to, to come alongside you and help you and ask you to get better. And then being good at self-reflection and looking in the mirror and saying, okay, here's my strengths, here's my weaknesses. Uh, and let's attack these weaknesses on a daily basis with an intentional plan to get better. Um, and, and just seeing the fruit of your work uh, over the long period of time and knowing that it's not going to happen in one day or one week or one year, but uh, if you stay with it and work the right way, it's going to it's gonna turn itself around and you're going to end up being, uh, being happy and thankful for all that work you put in. Nick, thanks for taking the time to join us. Best of luck the rest of the year. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking for the latest compelling baseball and football research? Head over to sportsinfosolutionsblog.com to learn about the latest things we're writing about. We do in-depth studies, leaderboards, and deep dives on the most important players, teams, and trends. Both full-timers and video scouts contribute material to the blog, and feedback is appreciated. If you have any comments or questions, you may contact the author of the post or email us at info at baseballinfosolutions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at sportsinfo underscore SIS as well. That's sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. It's time for Under Review, our segment where we look at research we've done and articles we've written. I'm joined by senior research analyst Alex Vigderman, and we'll first talk about the Nick Ahmed interview. He said a number of things that I think can uh, you can use data to uh, look at a, a bit. He talked about diving. He talked about positioning. Uh, the one that got me the most was the fact the pitcher's falling off the mound aspect. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, and when I said Zach, we were referring, of course, to Zach Greinke. I realized afterwards that I didn't say that it was Zach Greinke, but it in fact was. Uh, what was your take on uh, his comments? So I actually agree about the, the falling off the mound aspect for the pitchers. We, we had a sort of argument last year over whether that's more of like range or positioning and sort of the split between that in terms of how you fall off the mound. The thing I found the most interesting, I think, was his positioning to, for the double play, particularly in shifts, getting around the base so that he can catch the throw, not get interrupted by the runner, and, and make that throw cleanly. 
it's a thing that when we evaluate defense doesn't really enter into the equation. And I think that it's, it's one of those things where you might think that he's slightly suboptimally positioned based on the spray chart, but it's not just the spray chart that informs how you need to position yourself against a particular batter, especially in those double play situations. Also, uh, just going, going to that, their double play numbers this season are down and down a decent amount. And you wouldn't expect that because they have good fielders. So he's kind of pointing out, I guess, I don't want to say a flaw, but it is kind of a flaw in the shift that makes things more challenging uh, when there are uh, men on first base and less than two out in particular. One other thing uh, that I thought was uh, that I'm kicking myself that I wish I had asked him about that I didn't. Uh, Nick Ahmed, we talked about diving. We talked about a lot. He doesn't dive that much. And I think, as he said, you know, as the season goes on, you don't want to put too much wear on your body. He's approaching 30 years old. Um, he and Jose Iglesias, more than any shortstops in baseball, go to their forehand rather than their backhand. They try and put themselves in position to make a forehand play rather than a, a backhand play. Even though Nick Ahmed's very good on the backhand and he has his great arm, uh, he tries to be on his forehand as much as possible. And I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself that I didn't get to talk to him about that. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you can uh, get a little follow-up interview next time. <laughs> All right, so let's let's talk about a few uh, other things. Let's give a shout-out to another shortstop. Javier Baez of the Cubs voted our Defensive Player of the Month for August. It was only a matter of time for him. He might be Ahmed's toughest challenger for Gold Glove, him and Trevor's story, and the Fielding Bible Award, too. How do you pick between them? Uh, I don't know if I could pick between them so easily. I think the really interesting about Baez is that, uh, and we noted about it in the Stat of the Week article, is that he won the multi-position award in the Fielding Bible the last two years, the last three years. And now that he has played shortstop basically the entire year, it, first of all, it validates him as a defender. Shortstop's the most difficult defensive position. But also, he gets a little bit of... He gets discussed more often than the average defender because he has all these flashy plays, the tags, and all that sort of thing. And a lot of times, that has sort of deceived us in the way that we evaluate defense. You know, the Derek Jeter jump throws or as Drupal Cabrera in his prime doing all sorts of interesting things. And Baez is, is an example where the eye test and the stats match up perfectly. And, and this is really a season where it shows that he really is an excellent defender who also makes those sort of flashy plays that people really enjoy. Of course, the thing people are going to be wondering is, who's better? And it, it is hard because they're completely, completely different players. Uh, and there's Trevor Story uh, certainly in the mix as well. And Fielding Bible Award-wise, it's a little more open this year because Andrelson Simmons got hurt didn't play as many games. All right, going from the majors to the minors, minor league baseball season wrapping up. What do we have for notable names on our minor league defensive run save leaderboard? Before I, I pass to Alex, I want to explain. We track double uh, A and triple A very comprehensively. We track uh, single A at a, a level uh, at a bit too, but not quite as comprehensively as double A and triple A. Uh, so we have numbers on this. We have the same kinds of numbers that we have for the major leagues. Yeah, so before we get to any individual players, I do want to give some kudos to uh, Miami's AA affiliate, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp, who are the only team this year to have a positive DRS on the whole. Because when we evaluate defensive runs saved in the minors, it's on that major league scale. So it's not going to be centered at zero. It's going to be as though they were major league players. So almost everyone is negative. Um, the Jumbo Shrimp did excellently on shifts. They were the second shiftiest team in AA, and they got 15 runs saved on shifts, which was basically all of their positive value. Uh, so they were basically major league average across the board for every other, for their sort of non-shift plays. Uh, corner outfielders were a big help for them. Stone Garrett, who was Fangraph's number 11 prospect for Miami, uh, saved 10 runs in left field and six runs in right field. So a, a pretty solid corner outfielder there. 
in terms of individual performances, uh, there was a, so we also track things like total runs, which is the combination of offensive performance, base running, positional adjustment, defense. Uh, Sheldon Noose, who just got called up for the A's, Fangraphs number nine prospect, uh, he was third in total runs and he saved a run each at second, third, short, and left. So provides, especially that sort of like September call-up type guy can fill in, in a bunch of different spots. He's sort of an interesting player. Uh, this year's leader in DRS was Brandon Lockridge, uh, center fielder for in the uh, Yankees in a ball. Um, and you know, he's 22 year old in a ball. He's, he's not necessarily like the, the, the greatest prospect. And, and actually it was sort of interesting that he, uh, saved almost all of those rosins on shallow balls. So a lot of it is sort of playing a little bit shallower and, and that's not necessarily something that we advise, but sometimes it does work out. Um, another guy, Christian Pache, who Fangraphs has as the number one prospect in the Brave system, which uh, and, and one of the sort of top 100 guys, uh, AAA outfielder, only 20 years old. He played all three spots in, in the outfield, but mostly most of his runs saved nine in right field. I think it was number one or number two in right field. That wasn't a lot of games uh, either, which was uh, interesting to see that a guy racked up that many in that few number of games. Wasn't necessarily... You don't necessarily have to have a great number to rank well, and I want to circle back to just Cabrian Hayes, uh, who I believe had a, a negative number, but was sixth overall at third base among AA and AAA third basemen. That's nothing to sneeze at. Cabrian Hayes, the number two Pirates prospect. We talked to him on the podcast our last episode. So, uh, all right, that wraps up the uh, minor league numbers. Thank you for taking a look at that. And uh, there was one other thing Alex wanted to talk about. There was a defensive alignment in a game that you saw last week. We've talked with uh, Andrew Kine a bit about four-man outfields, defensive shifts in different ways. Uh, what did you see and what did you find interesting? Yeah, this was actually uh, covered a little bit in, in an article by Ben Clemens on Fangraphs last week. This was essentially an at-bat for Eric Hosmer against the Dodgers. And if you got not quite the right camera angle and you're getting sort of the, the more traditional, you get a look at the infield, you see what looks like a shift against Eric Hosmer, three guys and the, the one guy in short right field. And you think that's kind of odd because Hosmer doesn't really pull a lot of ground balls. He's actually extremely low in the number of, of ground balls he pulls. And then if you zoomed out, you actually find that that's just the right fielder playing incredibly shallow. And the, the infield was basically straight up. And so that's an alignment that you don't really see particularly often. And, and the spray chart, to some extent, bears that out, although it does obviously open you up to a lot of risk. But the thing that is really interesting is before you sort of see the entire field and you just see the guy standing in short right field, you aren't exactly sure if he's an infielder, is he an outfielder? And not only does that just make it interesting from a lineup perspective and, and, and the way that you sort of think about the game, but also as, as a defensive metrics company, like that gets things really complicated because when you're trying to compare, you know, shortstops or second baseman or whatever, whatever you want to call that uh, fielding position, are we comparing him to a right fielder? Are we comparing him to an infielder? It's not really clear how to handle that, that kind of alignment. It's the same question that came up a few years ago with Brett Laurie when they took the third baseman and moved him uh, over to second base. Hosmer is an interesting one because he hits so many ground balls. And uh, I feel like that's an alignment you try in a five-run game, six-run game, unless you're the Mets and you're about to blow a, a huge nine-inning lead. Uh, that's an alignment that I think you mess around with just to see if it works. And Ben Clemens in the article for Fingress pointed out no way to really know because he struck out. Uh, but that was uh, a cool thing to uh, to check out. All right, lastly, I want to do this the, uh, ideally on some other shows this season too, but I want to talk about job hunting because it's that time of the year for 
I think a number of the listeners, uh, that this is a time where you're looking for baseball jobs, whether they be in analytics or player development or um, baseball operations, uh, whatever that might be. Uh, Sports Info Solutions has a very long and uh, prominent history of getting to the baseball front office rosters of many teams. The most prominent of those, Eric Neander, the, uh, who is the GM for the Rays. All right, but Alex worked uh, for a team. He was an intern for the Boston Red Sox, and he has a couple of tips that could come in handy for job seekers. Yeah, and I, I sort of wish Andrew was here also, although he, he has sort of similar stories in this respect. He interned for the Pirates. Um, so I was working in, in the healthcare industry entirely unrelated and, and basically decided that I wanted to try and get into sports. And so I just sort of applied to a bunch of different team jobs and, and interns, internships with TrackMan and, and those sorts of companies. And because I had a job, I had the ability to sort of wait that out. That ended up being like a year and a half process of applying to different places and that sort of thing. And eventually, I uh, was able to get an, an interview here at the end of 2015 and one of the major reasons that, that I was sort of considered was not only a statistical background, but also having a blog that basically nobody read. It was just for me to get ideas out there, but it essentially acted like a portfolio of the kind of analysis I might be interested in and the kind of analysis I might be able to provide. And I ended up interviewing, didn't end up getting the job, but then the Red Sox had trouble filling their analytics internship a couple months later. And they essentially emailed our then president, Ben Jedlovec, and said, hey, have you seen anybody interesting that, that, that might want to uh, come apply for this job? And so they passed me over to the Red Sox and I ended up getting that internship, was there for a year. And then a, essentially the same position was available at this company. And so I just applied again. And now I had a little bit of a background uh, and a more sort of practical exposure to the industry. And so I was able to sort of parlay that into actually getting the job here. And I've been doing this ever since. So a couple of lessons from that. One, having work that's publicly displayable, blog, uh, you talked about that. Two, uh, your experience in the interview here clearly went well because you wound up going on to the Red Sox. What was the key thing within the Red Sox interview process that you would uh, pass on to someone who's looking for uh, that kind of job? I think a lot of it is uh, spending enough time sort of engaging mentally with the data that's out there. Uh, we, we find this too when we're interviewing intern candidates. If you have exposure to the StatCast data set or, or the other analysis that's out there and have opinions on it and, and ideas for what you might want to do with those things, that's, that's really useful because that's, that's the kind of thing that gets the people interviewing interested in, in the kind of work that you can do in it. And it gives sort of a, a, a more tangible idea of like, where could you fit in in the kind of work that they need from you? Essentially, the thing that we just talked about, the, the Ben Clemens article and that uh, play. I think if you expressed a way that you would want to study that further, that that would help uh, in something like that. The other thing I think people just need to learn as a general rule is you got to be patient with this, right? Like there's there's tons of applicants for every position. You just have to. Uh, they're not going to hire everybody. Uh, they're not. The chances of you getting hired are slim. So backup plans certainly help. Yeah, backup plans certainly help to some extent. You know. You, especially a lot of the people that are trying to apply for these jobs, you're going to be around a while. It, it, it might be, it might take a couple of years. You might need to have a, a job that isn't quite the perfect job that allows you to have a little bit of that backup situation. Um, but there are more and more of these jobs available now. Unfortunately, it's also a very well-known 
set of jobs. And so there's a lot of people applying for it. You see the winter meetings, there's hundreds of people walking around trying to get interviews. Uh, so it's, it's very much about the sort of grind of applying to a bunch of different places, getting to know as many people as you can. Obviously, with, with my internship situation, the reason I had more access to the Red Sox position was because I had interviewed here and having the connections among the people who were trying to hire is also helpful. Last words, start your prep now. Uh, look people up, uh, figure out who you want to apply to, find out what jobs are open. Uh, Baseball America directory certainly comes in very handy for knowing the names of the people in the front offices that you're going to want to contact. All right, let's break. We'll come back with a ridiculous number and wrap up after this. Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com. All right, it's time for the ridiculous numbers of the day. Ridiculous numbers of the day. Alex Bigerman. You're up first. So we talked about minor league DRS earlier. Uh, I So we had the the uh, leader this year, Brendan Lockridge, saved 15 runs. I, my, so my question is, we've, we've been collecting minor league DRS numbers since 2013. Uh, there are two guys. I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a better shot. There are two guys who have at least 30 runs saved in a season at a, at a given position in, in minor league since 2013. Can you name either or both of them? All right, Matt Chapman. No, actually. I was going to say Javier Baez. Uh, no. And, and I, I had a feeling you were going to guess Chapman first because he's sort of our, our, our pet project guy. To some extent, it was that he had sort of partial seasons and didn't quite get to those, those lofty numbers. Both of these guys are, were major league regulars, one of them not so much anymore. Uh, but they definitely are, are known for their defensive ability. Well, I, I saw a name on your sheet when I walked <laughs> in the door, so I'm not going to say it. I'm going to let you give the answer. All right, so the the number one guy was Billy Hamilton in 2013, which is which is a name that you know he's sort of fallen off the map a little bit because of because of his offensive ability, but from a defensive perspective was amazing from the jump, and and even you know had that sort of now sort of common transition from infielder to center fielder. Uh, the number two guy, Austin Hedges, who has obviously been a dominant framer, dominant catcher defensively over the last couple of years, and showed that early on in his minor league career. I like that. So the defensive numbers show some predictiveness uh, for the future. We've actually uh, written about that, uh, researched that in the past as well. All right. So Justin Verlander has allowed a 2.02 this season, which is bordering, if he somehow maintains that, and there's not much room for error, it's bordering on an all-time record. Edit Rollbuck, 1906 Cubs, was in the 190s. He's the guy Justin Verlander's chasing. I don't think he's going to get it. He's probably going to slip back a little bit. However, there is a relief pitcher, a relief pitcher for the Dodgers, who has pitched more than 50 innings this season and has a BABIP allowed somehow, some way, of 162. His name is not Kenley Jansen. He has allowed 21 hits that weren't home runs in 57 innings pitched. It is one of the more remarkable statistical feats of the season. And Alex, his name is? Boy, that's, 
And and this is this is very much like I, I could I could easily imagine it being there's a, a sort of bit that they did in Effectively Wild uh, that came, turned itself into a website where it's like, is this guy good? And and you just talk about these these relievers who just have 50 innings and you have no idea you know you haven't thought about that guy you don't you're not even sure if he's a major leaguer, um, and so having having basically no ability to guess this I'm I'm right now I'm at least looking at the Dodgers roster to try and help me with this but I don't I don't have Babbitt on the screen so don't feel too bad about it uh, I can't imagine it's any of the the sort of the, the standard guys who have been the, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be, and even the guys that we've sort of heard of before uh, with the, the Joe Kelly's and, and yeah, I got, I got nothing. Drum roll. No one could hear that, but it's Yemi Garcia, 57 innings pitched and a boatload of home runs, but only 21 hits that weren't home runs. Yimmy Garcia, thank your defense for the work they've done behind you and you've kept the ball in the ballpark <laughs> this season. <laughs> All right, and with that, we wrap up this edition of the Sports Info Solutions Podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Nick Ahmed, and our producer, Justin Stein. And thanks also to Alex Vigerman for filling in for Andrew Kine. I'm Mark Simon. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 